Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, not joined this week from Nashville by that man who is, I think he's off doing his Kenny G impersonation act. <laughs> um, so, uh, sorry, Jeremy, we, we miss you here. But we are joined by uh, David Moser, academic director of the CET program here in Beijing, who, though every bit as accomplished a jazz musician as Kenny, as Kenny G, G. <laughs> has Thanks. never actually had the distinct pleasure of being mistaken for him, mm-hmm. uh, unlike our friend. Uh, also here with us to chat about today's topic is Trey McArver joining us, uh, London-based consultant, China watcher, and author of the China Politics Weekly, which is a newsletter which tracks the movements and cryptic utterances of the Chinese leadership. So last week, a doctoral student named Jennifer Pan, who's at Harvard's Department of Government, and an MIT doctoral student in political science named Yi Ching Xu, presumably I don't know, have the characters for this for Yi Ching Xu's name, uh, they co-released a paper that's garnered a good bit of attention in China-watching circles, deservedly. Uh, you might know the name Jennifer Pan. She was one of the co-authors, along with Gary King and Margaret Roberts, of a couple of Harvard papers looking at the nature of internet censorship in China, uh, the ones that concluded that it was actually organizational language and calls to action rather than criticism of, of specific policies or of individuals that would be more apt to get you censored. Anyway, um, this new paper is simply titled China's Ideological Spectrum, and it applies some very sophisticated statistical analysis that I cannot pretend to at all understand to a set, uh, I, hopefully, David, you'll be able to help me, Trey, <laughs> yeah, sure. um, a set of data that's called the Chinese Political Compass, uh, which you can find at Zuobiao, uh, Z-U-O-B-I-A-O dot me, Zuobiao. Um, collected, it was between 2007 and 2014. It's an online survey which was conducted um, by some people affiliated with Peking University. It's completed by over 170,000 Chinese people, uh, presumably Chinese people, some of whom were overseas, but more than 80% of whom were in the mainland, uh, with 50 statements about which uh, respondents had to answer that they either strongly agreed, uh, or strongly disagreed, rather, disagreed, agreed, or strongly agreed. Um, Their questions, or statements, rather, that were aimed at plotting one's ideological coordinates along political, cultural, and social axes. Its findings were, to me at least, really fascinating. Um, First, it says that China's ideological spectrum is essentially one-dimensional, that there is, on the one hand, the left, which is, I guess, confusing to people who are uninitiated into this weird in-the-mirror world of ideological handedness in China. But, hey, left is the way that Chinese people talk about it, um, and uh, China watchers talk about it. And, you know, what we, we know that the left is more statist, more interested in egalitarianism than in freedom, more socialist, more suspicious of capitalism or capitalist excess anyway. And then perhaps unsurprisingly, they found that individuals who hold those sorts of views also tended to be more traditional, more patriotic or nationalistic, as you would have it, more socially and culturally conservative. And on the other side was the right, which sort of maps to the libertarian quadrant in the Western political schema. It embraces economic liberalism and individual freedom, but also, and again, perhaps not that surprisingly, is where you'd also find individuals who are pro-Western, more modern, more cosmopolitan, and socially and culturally more liberal. So the authors found, um, I think that, that's interesting, the, that it was unidimensional. They thought it all sort of squashed down along just one axis, right, along two ends. And the authors also found a very strong correlation between self-reported income levels 
and ideology. Uh, again, not surprisingly, maybe with those with higher incomes tending to be more toward the right and those of lower incomes tending toward the left. And probably because it made for such an eye-catching graphic, uh, they also related this to income, um, to, uh, the, to uh, you know, geographic income correlation. Um, I mean, so the, you end up with the red states or, I guess, red provinces and, and blue provinces, um, you know, the, 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 the liberal or libertarian right, uh, the, the, the blue provinces, not surprisingly, along the wealthy coast. Right. So for our convenience, they still keep red and blue for yeah. red for conservative. And blue. <laughs> Otherwise, my mind would have exploded. You know? Right. That's very confusing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but Kaiser, you should go ahead and, and spill the beans and say why this this uh, this this project, this agenda, this research project, so attracted you. Both of us, David. <laughs> like, let's, of let's, let's talk but, about. But this. let's be honest about why it's uh, so interesting to us. Um, well, for me, I, okay, let's, let's, let's go back and let's talk about the work of George Lakoff. I think okay. we've talked about him a little bit on yeah. this show before, but uh, a long time ago, David recommended to me a book uh, called The Political Mind by the cognitive linguist George Lakoff at UC Berkeley, uh, who was sort of a contemporary um, and rival kind of of, 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 Chomsky. of, of Chomsky. Right? Yeah. Lakoff is you know, UC Berkeley. And he's the guy who's associated with the idea that, that, that most, a lot of cognitive activity uh, a lot of the way that we think is, it, you know, we we know a lot about I mean, people construct these these central metaphors for right. for how they they think. Right. right. I mean, an example he uh, he he used a you know very simple linguistic data to come up with his metaphor system idea. You know, a simple way of thinking of it is something like we we use terms like he was boiling mad or she exploded at me right. or, or you know my my face was it left me cold red, right bulging red and if, and though we never stated explicitly the underlying metaphor there is that anger is heat. like heat right. that is contained in the body and escapes uh, you know at times of anger yeah. another one it's is it's clearly the, it's 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 yang qi right <laughs> Another is the way we think about time. We can we can have two competing metaphor systems. One is time is an uh, as a point in the distance that we are moving toward. As we say, we're uh -huh. heading towards you know the Christmas time, or uh, we're stationary and time is moving towards us. So you know uh, Christmas is almost us. upon oh, us. Right. Or so these are these are metaphor systems. And now what's interesting about Lakoff is that he was addressing the same kind of problem we had with the Chinese, which is why why does the, what the to liberals what the conservatives say. Just seems illogical, irrational. Yeah, so they, they couldn't put them together. Why, why is it that conservatives, for example, in America, are you know all about pro-life when it comes to the abortion issue, but are happy to put criminals to death? Right. Issue positions that seem to not have any kind of philosophical consistency, or, or that they're pro-life when it comes to abortion, but once the baby's born, they oppose any sorts of funding that's going to help you know prenatal you know help them the the you know unwed mothers, for example. Which to liberals just seems irrational. Right. By I mean, the same token, uh, conservatives say, "How can you be pro-choice, but then you're against the death penalty? You know, is right. a human life important or isn't it?" So what Lakoff did was he did use the same kind of technique to look at these the ways that liberals and conservatives talk, and he came up with this idea that the underlying metaphor that the two sides were using was based upon two different models of the family. That's right. The family as the central political metaphor, which you know, when when David and I read that, we very strongly read. I mean, both of us, being you know here in China, we thought, well, now is is this universal or is this right. is this is this central only to the United States? I mean, because certainly the Chinese think of the family as a central metaphor for politics as well. I mean, it's very explicit in Confucianism, right? Well, uh, so, just one thing for the audience that doesn't know the the two competing metaphors being the right seeing the family as a 
uh, a, no, so, the head of a strict father exactly, metaphor right. and the, the liberals being a nurturing mother. No, no, nurturative parents. Nurtured, nurtured, nurturative parent metaphor. That's right. So the strict father has the notion that it's a cruel world. Children must ha- uh, grow have up discipline with a sense of and discipline, obedience, right. obedience, a sense of responsibility. They must get independent of the parents as soon as possible. That's why a, a, an unwed mother uh, has, has basically suffered a moral failing for which she must right. take personal responsibility right. and not take the easy way out and of abortion. And why the poor are often vilified. Uh, you know, if you're poor, it must be a, f- a moral failing uh, you know, on your part. So, so this is what we were trying to look, does that map at any, at any, in any way onto the Chinese ideological spectrum? And we ta- talked about, uh, about you know, doing something along these lines, but then this, this comes along and uh, it, it kind of, to some extent, answers some of these questions that we, we had. But... Well, I think it, I think what's interesting is that this had been a question mark on everyone's mind. People, I think, people who work in sinology and in Chinese studies had sort of bracketed this as, oh, Chinese politics is a special thing only Chinese specialists can even understand. It, it doesn't really map uh, onto Western or at least the United States politics at all. And what this was, and this, here's where I think we should be honest about it. What this seems to indicate is not only that there there is a coherent mapping, there is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. But that also it points in the direction of, of uh, it has a trajectory. In right. other words, it points towards uh, certain areas being more uh, more open to, you know, to outside influences, to being having more open-minded attitudes about diversity, homosexuality, uh, having uh, you know a- different attitudes towards education, and so on and so forth. That, that look to us like the sort of enlightened, rational, liberal. Uh, citizen of the West. So the point is that we would love to get George Lakoff <laughs> sitting in a room together uh, with with uh, with Jennifer Pan and and with Yixing uh, Xu. Uh, so let's put a pin in this, as it were, and and I mean leave Lakoff for now, and then look at let's let's look at the substance of this of this uh, yeah. of this study. Trey, first of all, what, did you find this to be interesting? Any surprises that? Yeah, well, I actually thinking and, and listening to your discussion here, your kind of preliminary discussion. Actually, what's interesting is is you know I actually don't find it very strange at all that it's unidimensional because this actually it makes sense, right? There's a there's a real kind of philosophical coherence behind these different strands. That I've always found confusing, as as an American, mm-hmm. um, for for a lot of the reasons that you, a lot of the you know, the um, examples that that you pointed out at the beginning. So, you know, I, I think um, yeah, I think that most people would assume that there's kind of this philosophical consistency. I guess what what bothered me about this, I mean, I get right to my my, my okay. major beef with it, is <laughs> is this. Uh, I felt like. I've always believed that there should be another dimension introduced to this and that th- it was not satisfactorily addressed for me. Many of us have had this experience before. We've met people who, who map blue on, on, their, on their spectrum uh, on almost everything. So they're, they're more, more or less cosmopolitan. You would not think of them as, as, as um, I mean, they're, they're kind of, to use that word, neoliberal. I mean, they, they believe in, in the, the invisible hand. Um, they uh, believe in civil liberties. Uh, they, they believe in, you know, electoral competition. They believe in human rights. They're internationalists. They're all about universal values and science and all that. But when it comes to nationalism, when it comes to particular, particularly issues about um, sovereignty and, uh, you know, Tibet and, and Taiwan, 
they they display something that's that's completely different. And what stuck out to me like a sore thumb when I looked at at, at these the two answers, uh, the two the two statements that generate the most uh, absolute largest percentages of unweighted strongly agrees. And if you add up strongly agrees and agrees are by far the the biggest are two. One of them is the statement, national unity and territorial integrity are the highest interest of society. You have 33.3% agree and 24% strongly agree. So a total of what's that 57% uh, in the agree camp of of, of something like that. Uh, And then the other is, Oddly, the state should take measures to train and support athletes so they can win glory for the country in various international competitions, where you have an astonishing 47.7% agree and 30.9% agree strongly. Now, these are the only two questions of the 50 questions that are clearly about uh, national, uh, you know, that, that, that are clearly supposed to map you on, on, on your nationalist uh, scale. And the statistics would indicate it's not just the conservatives who were saying that. that's right, right. Yeah. that's right and so so you know I, I I felt like you know maybe that dimension to it was missing that you know we should be careful not to conclude uh, that the blues are going to be right they're well, going to they're going to map onto Western our notion of liberal free thinkers except when it comes to nationalism when they become kind of stridently of, left, stridently right. jingoistic uh, uh, and, and you guys have encountered people like this before, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when I read this, what I thought was because I thought it, it, it you know, I knew that that's how everybody was going to read this and interpret this as kind of like, oh, okay, China breaks down upon upon these, you know, they were going to map it or, or take the Western uh, kind of liberal conservative divide and then apply that to China. And um, that's clearly not the case, I think, for anybody who's spent any time here or, or you know, interacted mm-hmm. with a lot of Chinese people. So I, I, especially when I saw kind of descriptions of the, the Chinese liberal, you know, my my reaction was, well, we probably need to call this a, a Chinese, a liberal with Chinese characteristics. Because, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, you there are people that are, you know, kind of pro-individual, pro-choice, not in the... Uh, American context, um, kind of less statist, more international. But this, all of this takes place within the context of, of you know, kind of um, a, a populace that is that has a very strong sense of itself as a as a unique um, identity. Right. Mm-hmm. Their national identity is bound to be different exactly. than ours because of historical reasons. But there's another way it's a, it's liberalism with Chinese characteristics that was pointed out. Either in the New York Times piece or in the art, in the article itself, I can't remember. Right. Mike Forsyth wrote about this in the, the yeah, Sinistry blog. The, the, right. the Chinese liberals, quote unquote, are more like uh, Western libertarians, or United States libertarian, and they're 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 very f- uh, loose on social values. They're you know, smoke pot, take drugs, have free sex, whatever. But but they are, but they also are very much anti-government. Interference in economic yeah, they life. They don't want to, you know, interference with government economic life. So they act like more like Rand Paul than, than. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, the the, the goalposts are. I mean, it's, it's we're playing on a different. I mean, there's there's so much more sort of of a baseline interference of government and economic life here to begin with. So that's, it's, yeah, it's really. That, I mean, they that's, end that's up, why it's a little problematic that they that that they seem to have used these west these Western terms. To, as you put it, Kaiser, shoehorn their their theory into a little bit. Yeah. Did you feel like that? That there was a bit of uh, sort of shoehorning. Uh, we we were talking about this earlier. Did you did you feel like that this was 
a little bit of an imposition of a Western narrative, of framework, uh, uh, kind of a, uh, um, uh, a political philosophical framework onto something that doesn't fit easily? Well, I, I think it is, although I don't, I don't want to go too far in that I think, um, you know, I think what the authors need to do, you know, because, because actually, and I think we've discussed this as well, actually it does kind of make sense when you talk about this liberal conservative divide within China. I think we all understand that and we, and we also would agree, I, I think, disagree with me, that that, that does tend to correlate to, um, you know, levels of education, levels of income, et cetera. So I think... There are a lot of, you know, uh, these paradigms that we have in the West, there are a lot of things that we can take that are applicable, but we need to understand the context in which we're applying them and that they are not, they do not describe the totality of the situation and that there are some things that they leave out. So Right. There's, a, there's another problem with all of this too, which is, which is that one suspects, and there's a lot of research happening in the West now, in the U.S. at least, with Jonathan Haidt. Do you know him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris Mooney. Studying these these left right differences, uh-huh. and you know one of their problems with Lakoff and, and other things is that you know like you know t- to take the family metaphor as a strict father versus nurturing parent is already a sort of a symptom of a deeper underlying ideology. So these these people are a looking at different d- d- psychology is what you're talking. Yeah, about. you're talking about you're talking about almost like cognitive psychology or social psychology. And then you're talking about more deeper, more human things that, that transcend Christianity or Confucianism, for example. Things like novelty, novelty versus right. familiarity, uh, the risk-taking versus risk avoidance, fear of the unknown versus curiosity, and then respect for tradition versus iconoclasm or something like that, which is tr- I- independent of ideology. Of, 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 of specific ideology. And, and right. Jonathan Haidt talks about this notion of you know, fairness versus cheating, loyalty versus betrayal. Authority versus subversion. So you don't think sanctity versus de- degradation, which you can have in any. Liberals can have sanctity, right? right in sure, sure, things sure. That they, <laughs> they, they have it a plenty. Sacred cows, right? right. So, so they have sanctimony. <laughs> yeah. So what's what, what's uh, provocative about this this paper or this study is is that I think it seems to be getting at something. I I, I agree with, with Trey. It's not it's not surprising that there that there would be some unanimity here. They're human beings after all. But it, but it's interesting that that if 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 it were not the case, their their data would have been just junk. It would have been incoherent. Right. But they were able to find a consistency al- along this spectrum. It, it took some massaging, though. The data took yeah. a lot of massaging. And I, I, like I said, I don't really understand it. Maybe you guys can walk us through what, what was wrong with the, the data set. Well, it was not a random sample for right. one thing. Yeah. I mean, you had they, they don't. First of all, let me make sure, clear: the authors do not claim that this is a representative no, no, sample. They don't. Right. They don't. But, but it, what it, they was, do claim. it was mainly it was mainly young. College males. That's who, right. Well, over sixty-three percent, right? But but they say, well, and it was you know forty thousand from Beijing and two hundred yeah, from Xinjiang. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. It's an insanely they, Beijing. But they say, tilted. and I have people I've just asked. I think that they, they you can do this in statistics. That there's a way to weight the data so that using census data and other things, so that you can. Uh, you can and, and so, well, the data they give they give the what do they call it the unweighted or the raw right. data and then the weighted data, and they're reasonably sure that the weighted data would would accurately represent the a, a true a, statistical a, a true statistical st- sample to some degree. Although they admit it, you know, it's it's probably a fatal flaw in their research. But nevertheless, but still, do you got to do something with this amazing yes, data set? Exactly, I mean, you got to do something with this data, and it's and it's. Oh, and I, I still, I very much make very clear that I admire what they've done. This is this is a a, a, a great 
piece. I mean, oh, this is yeah. this is oh, an, yeah. an, an, an. I mean, I was kind of thrilling as I read it. It was really kind of fascinating to me. Uh, but do you want to get to the regional thing? That's what's, what's yeah, so, so interesting. Yeah. yeah, that that is okay. So let's um, first of all, uh, there were some weird th- things that we saw there. Like I, I have my own suspicions as to why some of these things might be the case. Like why was uh, Hubei? A, a very blue yeah, province. Liberal, yeah. I it's it's quite. No, I I know. I think I know why. Yeah. It's because of Wuhan and and the oh. the cluster of universities in Wuhan. You you have a, a, a I, take on I, that. I lived in Wuhan for a long time. So oh, you I did. Okay. So, oh, so he's personal saying it's, it's Wuhan his love. Yeah. Crazy influence on the population. <laughs> hands up. <laughs> hands in the air for Wuhan. Yeah. All right. Uh, um, but okay, Xinjiang. That was another one. It was like deep red. Now, why? Uh, we were talking about this earlier, uh, David. Yeah. My my suspicion is well. First of all, okay. Remember this data set is it's an internet uh, survey. So throughout immediately, you know, in two thousand seven when the survey survey began, internet penetration was about thirty eight percent, thirty seven, thirty six percent in China. Probably even less than that. I'm pro- I'm pretty sure it was less than that. So you throw out you know seventy odd, sixty odd percent of 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 people right off the bat. If you want to just look at the 2007 data, even now internet penetration in China is 51 percent. Um, so what are we ta- we're talking really about? Uh, I mean in Xinjiang, uh, uh, an, an intensely Han heavy uh, sample set. And they probably have that kind of pioneer. I mean, it's it's sort of like if you had taken a survey in 1870 in America and only looked at unincorporated territories exactly. or and, and worked for the Bing Tuan. Right, 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 <laughs> right, right exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like the Bing Tuan sample set. But then more interesting is the blue, because uh, interestingly, it corresponds to the urban areas, to Beijing, to Shanghai. Right, Shanghai, Guangzhou, the deepest blue, right, and the the, and the coastal areas. Right. Right. So it looks suspiciously, suspiciously like, hmm, the blue areas in the United States, New York, Los Angeles, anyone? Uh-huh. Right, right, right. And right. that this is correlated with urbanization, with income level. Yeah, with they, 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 they very much level. say this. They very much say this. And right. we say, hmm, this this liberalism, liberalism, as forced as it may be, as a framework that they're using, it it is provocatively <laughs> corresponds to our prejudice about what uh, development de- theory. Yes, right. exactly. About right modernization theory. I mean, um, what I I think is kind of pejoratively called neoclassical development theory, right? I, 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 this is, for some reason, I don't understand why that idea, well, was there some 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 falsifying event or uh, some country that was so, um, that did not fit the, the explanatory model offered by development theory that made everyone seem to just reject it? I mean, so to remind people what this is, this is the idea, and it really kind of, it proceeded, but it really kind of came into its own during um, the eighties, late eighties, and the early nineties, when you saw the rise of these um, Asian tigers and um, these countries that had moved from kind of poverty and authoritarianism into uh, middle class, into mi- middle income and economic prosperity, and toward uh, increasingly pluralistic politics. I mean, the classic cases, you know, of course, were, were like South Korea and Taiwan and uh, uh, and to some extent Singapore. Now, I guess, like I said, I, I don't understand why it was discarded, but um, the authors don't make the claim. But to me, like David was, was hinting at, it, it, it supports this belief, right? I mean, do you, Trey, did you sense that? Do you, do you, do you feel like, well, well gosh, I mean, it, it really does look like uh, as people get wealthier, more urban, more modern, they, 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 they tend to want more deliberative and, 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 and participatory 
politics. They they have you know a greater interest in civil liberties. They have a greater interest in you know sort of freedom of self expression and yeah. Well, I, I mean, and first of all, I'll say that it's been, you know, many years since I did my graduate studies in, in political science. So oh, I'm, longer I'm, for me, I assure you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit out of my depth here. But um, first of all, as far as modernization theory, my understanding is this really comes out of the 50s and 60s. Sure. Yeah. Um, when people were, were starting to try to understand how, um, how societies moved from pre-modern to modern states. Um, as far as why it fell out of favor, I, you know, I think there's there's probably two answers. One would say that, uh, you know, I think actually in a lot of in a lot of places it hasn't. Um, that I still I think it motivates a lot of you know uh, government policy around the world. Um, obviously, especially here, but I think even even in the United States, if you look at, at some of the things that that um, you know, I think um, if you look at the multilateral development banks and things like that, um, you know. There's still very much there, there's a part of them that is trying to increase economic development as uh, a goal on on mm-hmm. social and, and political development as well as a, a stage. But I think it all could, could just be a conflation of uh, and we talked about this the 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 system remaining authoritarian and this sort of implicit assumption that the ideology is as well. It, it I, I I was struck when I went back and, and read it. Um, the first, the very first sentence of the paper, or or of the introduction, or whatever, it says, a monolithic ideology is often described as a key characteristic of authoritarian totalitarian regimes, and it gives some some, mm-hmm. some, some examples. examples. And I think, well, wait a minute, a monolithic ideology, a monolithic publicly expressed or a publicly uh, allowable or, or or sanctioned ideology is often described as a key characteristic of authoritarian totalitarian regimes. Right. What people think. It's another matter, right? Yeah, and I think that's something that's lost in the shuffle when, when at this with the five tigers thing, and you know, how can how can Singapore be, you know, an economic powerhouse and still be an authoritarian regime? Well, that doesn't tell you what the people are thinking, right? Right. Well, and not you know, not to play devil's advocate, but uh, I mean, are, are we? Is there not a monolithic ideology within the United States as well? I mean, are we not kind of pretty? pretty firmly wed to democratic capitalism. Yeah. You know know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody challenges that, right? Yeah, so, um, you know, I kind of find that to be a bit... So the the other thing that this study would seem to me to really challenge is an idea that has become very popular with a certain set of China watchers. Um, It's the idea that's been put forward in Jim Mann's, or James Mann's, The China Fantasy, of which our good friend and frequent guest, Bill Bishop, is a, a big advocate. Um, it, that idea is basically that we're deluded if we think that engagement with China is going to make China more like us. Again, on, on what basis are we really rejecting that idea? I mean, it seems to me that the engagement that you know that we, we've, we've seen across the entire period since the end of 1978, um, well, gosh, I mean, you know, that results in closer integration with international economic systems, mm-hmm. with cultural exchange it results in you know in diffusion of ideas in like travel in individual contact all that i mean that 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 really has resulted i think i mean the evidence is of of this data shows in an ideological shift and precisely in the areas where you see the most intense uh you know engagement you know the most closely integrated into in, into uh, international economic systems uh, where you see you know cultural exchange has been has been most 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 you know intense or diffusion of ideas is most pronounced right yeah so you know so fuck jim man <laughs> <laughs> but it also, but also it sort of also uh bolsters the claims of even 
people like Rupert Murdoch, you know, who said, you know, when we bring, when the economy uh, modernizes, then, then democracy follows. But democracy hasn't followed, but, it, but certainly ideologically, uh, you know, China has really advanced, you know, amazingly. The no, spectrum, the demo- I mean, I'm not, nobody's here, arguing that, right, right, that democracy itself will follow. But I mean, but look, what it has done is it, it's laid the groundwork for it. it, it there is a popular and, and, and quite palpable, I mean, look, um, I have yet to really meet many people who who are of, of any sort of note, noteworthy intelligence who don't think that we want to get from A to B, that we do eventually want a more pluralistic politics in China. We want, you know, uh, something that is more responsive to to the general will or, you know, whatever Rousseau or whatever. Uh, nobody doesn't think that. It's just a question of how to get from A to right. B. Well, but I, I would also say that there are a lot of people I, w- I would agree with you that everybody wants more responsive government um, and more participatory government. But that is not the same as saying that everybody wants one man, one vote. So I think there are actually right. quite a lot of you know intelligent people who, you know, are actually support a one party state, but but want to see one that that has increased avenues for participation and increased safeguards on you know, things like the rule of law yeah. and, and fairness. So. The trajectory we see is, is consistent. The specifics are going to vary according to yeah. the, to the guoqing. Can, can we get into some examples? Because there might be a lot of yeah, listeners yeah, going, yeah. what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so let's give some examples. David. Here's, I, I, here, yeah. here's, one, here's, here's one of the examples. Uh, the modern society needs Confucianism, you know, and you can uh, strongly disagree, disagree, Right. Agree or strongly agree, right? right? Well, this was interesting to me because 77% strongly disagreed. Right. Which is interesting because they're the, right now, Confuci- they're pushing Confucianism as a new kind of state ideology, and people aren't buying it. 77% of the people are not buying that. I, I, don't, I don't have it in front of me right now, but there was one that I thought was really interesting, which said that the Bagua and the, yes. the, 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 the Yijing uh, can explain many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was surprised at the, at the number of agrees with yes. that. Oh, there was one about Chinese medicine, too. Right, right, right. That, about that traditional strong, Chinese medicine. Strong, that strong. didn't surprise me as much, but yeah. Right, right, right. Um, but I think, you know, to go to that Confucianism, Confucianism one, um, again, you know, <clears throat> the, the, the kind of easy interpretation of that is like, oh, you know, Chinese people are not, are not wed to traditional ideology or they don't necessarily, um, you know, think that that traditional culture is what should rule the day but i think also you know wh- where's the question that says legalism is an important but, why, know, why why is where's the, the other one where's the yeah you know, exactly where the like, just because people don't believe in confucian because actually if we the party itself has actually kind of you know it's it's been obviously schizophrenic, a bit about schizophrenic right, with, right. with with yeah. traditional uh, ideas but it's you know under this administration it's become Kind of less pro-Confucian and more pro-legalist, right. so it's still, it's still kind of promoting and and you know a, a particular what it sees as a particularly Chinese ideology, right. but it may not be that particular idea uh, Chinese ideology. But on the other hand, if you ask people questions like, "Do you believe uh, children should be filial to their parents?" You would get high, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Do you yeah. believe that you know that uh, you know? The, I, the, I actually thought that it was a, a, a f- an incredibly fun list. Uh, I mean, yeah. it, it was I. I it was just all day at the office. You know, in the last couple of days, I, I've just been wanting to grab my Chinese colleagues and make them take the test. 
I mean, ser- seriously. Here's one that struck me. It, was, uh, it is acceptable to besmirch the images of national leaders and founding leaders in literary and artistic works. That one was really surprised me with how many people agreed that it was acceptable. Right. Yeah, Seven, uh, 65% agreed. 65% agreed, yeah. right. But and so just out of curiosity, I just went to the Internet and looked at a Gallup poll about uh, do you favor or oppose a constitutional amendment that would allow Congress to make it illegal to burn the American flag? A very analogous question. A very analogous question, I think. And and the, this ni- the 2006 result was that... Uh, 56% of Americans favored it and 41% opposed wow. it. So, so Americans so are less iconoclastic. Are, yes, right. the Chinese are more enlightened and liberal than we are. <laughs> <laughs> Well, great, guys. Um, I know we're, we're time. This, this. I know it seems like we just got started, but time's already gotten away from us, uh, and we do need to make some recommendations for the week. So let's let's get started with that. Um, and Trey, why don't you start us off? Do you have a recommendation for us for this week? Uh, yeah, I do. So I, I you know, I, I thought this study uh, is very interesting and, and very interesting for thinking about how uh, we order our societies, um, and it. it so something that I've uh, an article that I've really appreciated was uh, by a German uh, political scientist named Wolfgang Streich, who um, can you spell that surname for us? Yes, it's S T R E E C K. Okay. Uh, the article is the politics of exit. It was in the New Left Review in the July August edition of 2014, and it it basically looks um, so going back to modernization theory, if if kind of the end state ends up being this this um, you know participatory democracy, uh, he kind of looks at what happens after that and how uh, democracies in particularly in in European polities uh, have evolved to um, actually become less representative over time. Hmm. So it's um there's there's a that's a, a gross oversimplification of a much more nuanced um argument but it's it's i think it's very interesting um for for those of us that are thinking about how we order our societies um and political systems in general it's kind of disappointing <laughs> it goes it goes against the spirit of the podcast <laughs> david what do you have for us this week um i just want to recommend um it's in chinese but the the the, the relatively new publication uh, online publication that's called Peng Pai. In English, it's www.thepaper.cn. And what's interesting about it, it's very much, you would almost swear they modeled it on the Huffington Post. It's very, uh, you know, uh, has very clear sections, very trendy titles and things. <laughs> what, but the reason Click I recommend baby. it is, is it's no different than any other one, except, except that it seems to be laser focused on the Xi Jinping agenda. Uh-huh. So, so like every section gives you, you know, one of one take on the. So, for example, there's one section called the Da Hu Ji, the attack <laughs> yeah, the record yeah, yeah, of yeah. attacking tigers, and it has the you know the the, the recent uh, corrupt politicians that have luomad, you know, been kicked, have been fallen off their horse, and you know that's a section you can go to, you know, whereas, oh my God. whereas Huffington Post is lifestyle so, so is or media. This right, and another one sort of like is BuzzFeed, yeah, Xi Jinping like, edition, yeah, <laughs> BuzzFeed. Another is Jiu uh, which is not. Zhishi as in not intellectuals, but it's zhishi as in shushian, as in food. Oh. And it's a whole section on food quality and issues related to food quality. And and, and there's a section, Zhongnanhai, which is just a, a sort of, a, a of auditory, you know, portraits of the leaders, ah. right? So uh, it's not that it's so great, but it's conveniently cross-sectioned, you know, uh, divided up to give you the precise Xi Jinping prism on China. So I, I just find it interesting for that reason. It, it'll, I, I, my bet is they're going to put an English version out soon. 
because it's just too good to be outstanding. Too Western to be true. Yeah, I want to. I want to. I want to see this. So my uh, recommendation is uh, related to this paper. I think that that um, a good counterpoint to it is to go back and read Mark Leonard. Um, his his book China 3.0 Understanding the New oh, China okay. which he, he edited uh, which is a collection of essays uh, that Mark Leonard who has been a guest on this show before um, looks into you know the political culture of China uh, and takes a good sort of sampling across a a multi-dimensional political spectrum and I think you know one of uh, I think that one of my big beefs with this paper big not a big beef but is you know wh- what happens to the new left in this mm-hmm. right they, they kind of even now admittedly they are small. They are statistically, they are vanishingly yeah. small, and they don't have a huge audience. But there are a lot of people who uh, simultaneously advance the causes of civil liberties uh, and uh, rule of law, and at the same time are are very very critical of the of neoliberalism and are very concerned about uh, you know the fragility of of the ecosystem and and what rampant and sort of you know GDP Uber Alles is doing to China. Uh, so I, I, I'm, these are people that I immensely admire. I mean, Wang Hui and, um, is it? well, I, I might be wrong, but I think in his first book, that was the same kind of thing. Which right. Is, it's, called, it's called, what does China, what does China think? think? Right. Wasn't Wang Hui represented in there? He was, he was. Yeah, okay. That's what I'm saying. I mean, no, what I'm saying is in this paper, this not, not in Mark Leonard, Mark Leonard is a big Wang Hui fan. Oh. I'm saying in this paper, this paper, the, yeah. the, the, the kind of new left perspective, what happens to, to them? Right. So yeah, um, you know, Xu Zhiyong and uh, uh, Cui Zhiyuan. Cui Zhiyuan is 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 the other kind of Tsinghua uh, New Left thinker that uh, I actually had the pleasure of having dinner with with two of them um, not too terribly long ago. Uh, really interesting guys. And uh, actually, Wang Hui at some point will will be making an appearance on this show. I haven't summoned up the pluck to to you know call him. I have his number. <laughs> he's, not, you know, he's just like I'm not worthy. But hey, um, but you know, hey, I can get David Moser on my show, so I can get yeah, yeah. Trey McArver. <laughs> thanks, Keezer. Say, <laughs> so, um, so hey, thanks for for listening, and uh, and uh, tune in next week for more from the Cynical Podcast. Take care.